0: So, we're going to hit the second part of the series. Now, again, this uh, little two part series is different than normal because it's more of a teaching series and it's probably not as entertaining or whatever, but uh, not always supposed to be inter- entertaining. But it's more teaching than preaching. But this is stuff, uh, whether you want to or not, that we need to know. Because if you're at all engaged in culture and talking to people about Christianity, uh, you have people who say, well, you know, you can't trust your Bible. It's been changed, it's been switched around, and, you know, you know, we don't have the originals, and there's a lot of errors, and, and you need to somewhat be able to answer some of those questions. I mean, we as Christians can't uh, walk through life with our head in the sand, you know, running from truth. We should never be afraid of truth, should never be afraid of science, all of those things uh, God works through, and science is good, and the study of scriptures and manuscripts is good, because it's, God is truth. And we never need to be afraid of truth. Now, in part one, Hopefully I'm not too wired here. Now I'm usually a decaf guy because I get affected by caffeine, uh, but but Dave this morning's like, hey, I'll make you a coffee, and he's like, well, I'm better at making uh, caffeinated than decaf, so I had a double caffeinated <laughs> coffee this morning. So if I start talking too fast, I just go whoa. Okay. <coughs> in part one, we talked about um, manuscripts and errors in the manuscripts because if you're engaging in someone who's studied manuscripts or read maybe a little bit about Christianity and, and is kind of fighting against Christianity, sometimes you might hear them say something like, do you know that there's more errors in your manuscripts than words in the New Testament? And, and, and that's true. We talked about that. There are over 400,000 variants in our biblical manuscripts, and we only have 140,000 words in the New Testament. And again, some people are like, whoa, 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 I guess we can't trust the Bible. And it's like, It's actually nothing to be afraid of, and we talked about why. Because 99% of those variants don't change the text. There are issues uh, of spelling and word order. The most common error is the difference, like in our English, between A and AN, a movable new. We talked about that. And, And then we just thought that, hey, we can trust our Bible. Uh, the study of manuscripts has been a good thing, and we have a, an embarrassment of riches. And remember, we even looked at, at Bart Ehrman, who was one of the major critics against Christianity and the New Testament. Even he says the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. And so if you run into people who say, well, we don't really know what the early Christians taught or the manuscripts have been corrupted or has been changed, that actually just is not grounded in any kind of fact just kind of popular thinking, even people who are agnostic slash atheists, he, he's more, he calls himself more of an agnostic, but agrees that none of our essential teachings are affected by manuscript variants. And so uh, we can, again, trust what this book says. Now, today we're going to talk more about contradictions and, um, and some of the Gnostic Gospels. But one important thing we need to talk about is truth. We as followers of Christ... Uh, look to the Bible, and, and the Bible is, not our, our, is, is our truth, but truth is a person. We look to Jesus. The Bible helps us, us get to Jesus. But where do you get your truth? Uh, if you don't hold to the Bible, and you're not a follower of God, I mean, where do you get your truth from? Because everybody gets truth from somewhere. Uh, some people would say, uh, I, truth is whatever makes you feel good, just whatever makes me feel good, that's, that's true. But, I mean, that has a lot of holes in it there are a lot of things that I, that I wish were true that aren't true. I mean, uh, bad things happen when I feel they shouldn't. I mean, just because we feel it's true doesn't make it true. Uh, some people say, well, the truth is whatever the majority says. I mean, there was a time when the majority thought the earth was flat and the majority was wrong. Just because the majority of people say something does not make it true. Or truth is whatever you believe to be true. That I really believe this to, to, to be true, so it must be true. In fact, not a while ago, I was having a conversation with somebody. And we were talking about spiritual things. And, and I said, so, so what are your spiritual beliefs? And he was telling me, and, and his spiritual beliefs was basically just all kinds of concoctions of different beliefs and gods all mixed together. And he says, I just really believe this is true. And I say, well, where do you kind of get that belief from? He just oh, I said, just, I just feel that I just, I just believe this is true. Well, again, just because you believe something is true doesn't make it true. And this flies right back at us, by the way. Just because you believe something is true doesn't make it true. I mean, truth needs to be founded on more than just just mere belief or faith. And others, especially in our culture, say there is no such thing as truth. Because sometimes truth is hard to figure out. Because you read in the article, you read one article that says this, and this one says the opposite. I mean, like what is truth? And so a lot of people are kind of giving up on truth, that there is no such thing as truth. But the big problem with that statement is it's a self-destructing statement. Because basically that person is saying the truth is there's no such thing as truth and therefore the statement explodes because they're trying to make an absolute truth statement. That it's absolutely true that there's no such thing as truth and therefore their statement doesn't work, if you can figure that out. Now for us as Christ followers, uh, we see that truth is found in a person. Uh, John 14 says, and this is Jesus speaking, I am the way and the truth and the life. The truth is found in the person of Jesus. Uh, John 8, uh, Jesus said this. If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so his teachings are truth and the truth of his teachings will set us free. And where do we find the teachings of Jesus? Uh, We find them in the Gospels. We find them in the New Testament. And so we look to this word as truth. Here are the true teachings of Jesus, which are the embodiment of the true truth in in Jesus. Uh, Jesus also said, as he's praying to the Father, teach them your truth, Father, which is truth. That the Father's word is truth, and we find God's word in here. And of course, uh, we all know this verse. Most of us do anyways. That says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That, that, that the Bible says that all scripture is God-breathed. That God had his part in, in, in putting this book together. Now, he didn't like cause these guys to like go into automatic writing or like, you know, take control of them. I mean, there are a lot of different authors, about 40 different authors in this book. Each one writes in their own unique style. Peter is different than John, and Matthew is different than Luke. But God worked through the process. And the process is explained a little bit in 2 Peter. It says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never has its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is the language of how the Bible was written. That that these people were carried along by the the Holy Spirit as it was written down. And we usually say that that the Holy Spirit kept them from error. Now the question is again, like, well, why should we look to this book as truth? Uh, There's a lot of other holy books out there. There's a lot of other, you know, so-called truths out there. Why do we look to this book as truth? Now, we could talk a lot about that, but let me just make a few points. Uh, First of all, this book is incredibly unique, and there's this miraculous unity about this book. Most other holy books have been written by one person, like the writings of Muhammad or the the, the sayings of Buddha. This one has 66 different books, written in three different languages, over 1,500 years. It wasn't all written during one time like like many books are, and there are, are about 40 different authors, yet there is this amazing unity. The the story just flows as God was working through all these different people, that the story of God coming to redeem man and draw him to himself is a story that flows through all of scriptures, and it's very unique, and and there's this this supernatural unity about the book. Uh, Secondly is manuscript evidence, and I'm not going to go into this too much because we talked a lot about this a few weeks ago. But you remember this picture, the tallest building in the world, that when it comes to biblical manuscripts, we have like this incredible embarrassment of riches, that we have uh, a host of manuscripts that no other ancient book has even uh, close to the amount of. And, and the difference was this, that if you took the tallest building in the world, and you doubled it, and then you stood next to the, way, way at the bottom, you would represent the amount of manuscripts that the average uh, ancient author has, like history of Rome and the history of a Greek and all those sources that we look to that we have about this many manuscripts. But when it comes to the Bible, we have two times the height of a building worth of manuscripts. Our manuscripts go way earlier than, than any other work of classical literature. And the point was this, that if you reject the Bible, you have to, if you're thinking straight, you have to reject Most of the history of Rome, most of the history of Greek, most of ancient writings, Plato, Homer, all those things, because they don't have even close to the evidence that we have for the New Testament. So manuscript evidence. And by the way, there is no book that has been challenged more than this book. And it still remains strong. Yet it's interesting, you still find things like this. And I was just reading the other week, I came across this statement in a blog I was reading. I said this, the fact that this book, talking about the Bible, has been bastardized during translation numerous times during its existence, has been rewritten to certain individual personal preferences on a number of occasions, and has had many complete chapters omitted, is irrelevant to its followers. Talking about us. All that requires faith. Proof and evidence is not a prerequisite. And just so you know, that's just a stupid statement. Because it's not grounded at all in real facts. That the reason we can trust this is totally based... On manuscript evidence, fact, I mean, yeah, we we have faith in God that's a part of it. But this isn't just fairy tale stuff that the best scholars and historians, I mean, you look at it, it's just like, man, we can trust this book compared to other ones. Third one is just fulfilled prophecy. There are incredible prophecies in here that you can't explain in any other way other than supernatural. I mean, the book of Daniel has prophecies about the Roman Empire and Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire way before it came about. The prophecies about Jesus are absolutely amazing. There are so many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled when he came here that a lot of people for many years said, well, those prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus obviously were entered in there after Jesus lived. Because for a long time, like uh, the book of Isaiah, for instance, the oldest manuscript we had was after Jesus. So they'd say, well, maybe it's been changed. But then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we have a copy of the complete book of Isaiah, a hundred years dated before the time of Christ, and all those prophecies are still the same. I mean, this book is supernatural. Uh, Dr. Hugh Ross said this. The Bible accurately foretells specific specific events in detail, many years, sometimes centuries before they occur. Approximately 2,500 prophecies appear in the pages of the Bible, about 2,000 of which already have been fulfilled to the letter. No errors. The remaining 500 or so reach into the future and may be seen unfolding as days go by. Since the probability for any one of these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance averages less than 1 in 10, figured very conservatively, and since the prophecies are, for the most part, independent of one another, the odds for all these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance without error is less than 1 in 10 to the 2,000s. That is one with 2,000 zeros written after it, which is way more electrons than we even have in the universe. I mean, it's just impossible. I mean, the only explanation is that this book has a supernatural source. So another reason we trust the Bible. Archaeology is a big one. Uh, A lot of other holy books, archaeology has shown that there's holes in the writing and contradicted the writings. Not so with the Bible. Nelson Guick, who is a noted archaeologist, said... It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. Uh, archaeologists, whether they're Christian or not, if they're working in the Middle of East, Middle East carry a Bible. Because the places, the people, the events, I mean, they, they just know, Christian, not, know that if you dig there, you find stuff. And, and, and it's, it's kind of humorous if you look over history, how many times people have tried to discredit the Bible by saying, there's no evidence that King David ever lived. Which there wasn't for a long time. There's no evidence that the Hittites lived. See, the Bible's just made up. And then they dig up evidence that King David really was who he was. And they dig up evidence that the Hittites really were. And, and we just get to see that, that stuff in the Bible was talked about long before we ever even realized it was, it was true. Number five is the message of love. Now, as we're kind of confused sometimes in this world about truth, you know, there's one truth that pretty much everybody agrees on, and that is the truth of love. There's something about love that all humans desire. There's something about love that all humans just have wired into us that we want love and, and we desire to give love, and even sometimes we kind of cloud that with messiness. But, but the logic goes that if we're so wired for love, and if there is a God out there, then he must be a God of love if we're all made in his image. And I love what Dr. Greg Mitchell said. He said, love is a perfect way to evaluate deities, If gods are distant, singular, or simply a force, they lack the warmth of love. They can't teach us something, they aren't. If they are self-serving, brutal, mute, or non-sacrificial, they too are disqualified. If they demand payment for blessing, move on, why trust someone like that. It doesn't matter what we grew up believing, or what is convenient to believe, have courage to find a God that captures the fullness of love. And here's the shocking truth. The benchmark of love narrows uh, down the field to just one, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came and gave up his life for you and me. And there is no love that is that beautiful and that strong, that amazing, that the God of this universe would come down in order to have a relationship with us, would die the most brutal death on the cross. Uh, Number six, and that's simply the life-changing message. I mean, the, the truth of this word, which points us to truth embodied Jesus, it just changes people. I, it's, it's one of the privileges of being a pastor. I mean, you just get to meet so many people that I just had a conversation last week. Someone was just saying, I, I'm just so thankful to have Jesus, Jesus in my life. He changed me so much. I mean, the message of this is true. It just, it just changes people radically. And I know many of you have been radically changed by the power of the message of the gospel as found in Jesus Christ. And so this idea that we just blindly take this book by faith is really just kind of some of this popular think- thinking and stuff. I mean, this, our faith is grounded in fact. We could talk a lot more about that, but that wasn't even the topic of the day. So uh, briefly, <clears throat> this will be quick. Gnostic gospels. What about the Gnostic gospels? Because you will get this. Again, if you're talking to people. Well, why do you only have the four Gospels in the New Testament? There's lots of other Gospels out there. Uh, so they're The missing Gospels are the secret Gospels in the church. You know, at one time in their history, they had this debate about which Gospels should go in there, and they had all these Gospels, and for political reasons or power reasons, they picked these four, and they kind of pushed these others away and hid them so no one would find out. Stuff like that you hear. Uh, what about the Gnostic Gospels? What about these other Gospels? Uh, what is a Gnostic Gospel, you might ask? is basically a collection of uh, 52 texts based upon the teachings of several spiritual leaders written from the 2nd to the 4th century. Uh, And so they're later texts. And by the way, just because something has the title gospel doesn't mean it's in competition with another book that has the word gospel. I mean, it's just just a title. It doesn't mean it's like the word about Jesus or or anything like that. But here's the thing with Gnostic gospels. A few things. And most importantly, that the Gnostic Gospels were written very late. When it comes to uh, the four uh, Gospels here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written between 50 and 60. John was written a little later. But when it comes to these Gnostic texts, they were written from the 2nd to 4th century. This is like sometimes 100, 200 years later than these four Gospels we have. Uh, uh, Secondly, the four Gospels we have were written by people who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, who hung out with Jesus. The Gnostic Gospels were written by people who were way after Jesus, who didn't really know Jesus or have a, a relationship with Jesus. I mean, it would be like this. Uh, let's say I had some friends, and hopefully I have some friends here, and then I pass away, and some of you who know me really well and hung out with, walked with me, you decided that each of you is gonna write a biography about Jesse. And so you write one, and this is all kind of independent. Maybe you share some stuff together, as, as Mark and, and Luke and Matthew probably shared some stuff. But you write these biographies, and people read them and say, yeah, that's exactly what Jesse was like. I was right on. They're, you know, different perspectives, each of those biographies, but they're just, they're just banging on exactly what, what Jesse was like. Because by the time they were written, there were other people who had hung around with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who would have read those things. And then let's say 100 years later, someone who never knew me, never hung out with me, decided he was going to write his own biography about me. And so he writes a, a story about me with stuff. And, and everybody who knew me was like, that's not the Jesse I know. I mean, that's just kind of weird stuff. Where is that coming from? And that's what we're talking about. Uh, they're just, I mean, this idea that there was this competition in the early church, trying to which one and trying to hide these ones, I mean, it's just, it's just a, f- a fable. I mean, you can look at many quotes of early church fathers who say, you know, these are the four Gospels, that we know these are the Gospels. And so uh, the idea of Gnostic Gospels is not an issue at all in terms of the New Testament. And if you really want to be serious about taking them serious, let's just read a couple things. Gospel of Peter, his story of the resurrection. Uh, They see three men, this is two angels and Jesus, come forth from the tomb. And two of them supporting one. And that would be Jesus. The two angels are supporting Jesus. And a cross following them. And so here we have a walking cross. Okay. This cross is following Jesus out of the tomb. And of the two, the heads reach unto the heavens. So we have a walking cross and two angels that are as high as the heavens. But the head of him, that's Jesus, that was led by them over past the heavens. So now we have a walking cross, two angels as high as the heaven, and Jesus who is taller than the heavens. And then they heard a voice from the heavens saying, this is, would be God the Father. Thou hast preached to them that sleep, and a response was heard from the cross. Yay! So, it's kind of odd stuff, like a talking cross, and two angels as high as it, and Jesus taller than heaven. Kind of weird stuff. And, and there's lots about the Gospel of Thomas. I mean, yeah, you know, these Gnostic Gospels, they really tell us stuff about Jesus. We really got to look to those as truth. Really. Let's read. Simon Peter says to them, let Mary go out from our midst, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus says, see, I will draw her so as to make her male so that she also may become a living spirit like you males. For every woman who has become male will enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is kind of the chauvinistic sense behind some of these taxes. Okay, Really, is that line up with Jesus? No. Again, again these Gnostic Gospels aren't an issue when people try to make them an issue, but they're not. All right, what about contradictions? This one's a little more difficult, Okay. If you've ever taken Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they're similar, you place them side by side, and you read them, you will come across some differences, and some Christians have never done that, and they, when, and they get challenged by people, and they don't know what to say. So, for instance, some people, uh, say like a Bart Ehrman or others, might challenge a uh, Christian like this. So, you believe the Bible. Yeah, I believe the Bible. You believe it's God's word. Yeah, I believe it's God's word. You believe that God is perfect. Yeah, I believe God is perfect. You believe there's no errors in this text. No, oh, I don't believe there's no errors. Okay, he'll say. Let's look at it. And maybe he'd throw out something like this. This is the same story. Jesus only said this once, but all three gospels say that Jesus said something slightly different. Mark 14. Jesus says, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Luke says, Jesus said this. From now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Matthew says that, well, Jesus said this, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so here we have the same story. Jesus only said this once, but it's said three different ways. And he will say, well, they can't all be right. Jesus only said this once. So you're saying this book is without error? Well, what's wrong? Because, I mean, obviously they had different opinions about what Jesus said, and, and see, you can't trust your Bible. It's not God's word. And, and some Christians are like, well, I don't know what to do. I thought it was perfect. I thought every word in here was exactly as Jesus said. And why do they say Jesus ain't th- three different ways? <laughs> and if you read through it, something like that, anyways. <laughs> yeah, that's the caffeine for you, I guess. <laughs> I'm going to be getting one every Sunday now, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I ask for a decaf, it's going to be caffeinated. Uh, scholar uh, Dr. Craig Evans, I spelled his name wrong there, rightly says this. The Gospels are not, modern, are, are not examples of modern of Whatever. The quotations of Jesus are not verbatim. Okay, this is true. The events are not in strict quant- chronological, chronic, no, caffeine sequence, (laughs) slow down. The teachings, (laughs) this is the most fun we've had ever, yeah. The teachings of Jesus is often grouped and clustered according to topic, not when or where it's said. And so he's right about this. Again, if you compare the three gospels, you will see that Jesus says things different ways here. It's not all in the same chronology. Sometimes this event is here in Matthew and here in Luke. And part of the issue is, and again, to scare some Christians, and we don't need to be afraid of this at all. In fact, Jesus would have taught his disciples to do this, and we'll talk about this in a moment. But the reality um, is this. This is 2,000 years ago. Uh, they did not record things down the same way we do today. I mean, we are like in videotape world where we need the news, it's got to quote everybody exact, and if they make a mistake, then there's a post at the bottom, and they got to correct the quotation because they just missed one word, and, and we record everything, and everything's typed out exactly word for word. That's the kind of life we live in. That's not the way they lived back then. They didn't write everything down. A lot of things were by memory. It was just a different kind of culture. And in fact, Jesus would not have taught his disciples to quote him exactly word for word, and and we'll see that in a moment, but here's some, some other things that we see, some of the contradictions. Sometimes we'll see more or less details when it comes in the same story. So here's the same story. Matthew 20, 30 says, two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, the blind men shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Luke 18 puts it this way. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man and uh, and here we see there's two blind men here, only one here, was sitting by the roadside begging, and, and some people who criticize the wall. This one says two, and there's only one. They can't both be right. There must be something wrong with the Bible. You can't trust it, right? And when he heard the crowd going by, they asked what was happening. They told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. That that's not up here, but that's in Luke. And then he calls out, "Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me." And the other one says, "Have mercy on us." So one person, two person. Less details, more details. Some people will try to, those who try to challenge Christianity will say, look, you, this, is, this is not the same. This is a contradiction. This is the same story. There's nothing to be afraid of here. Uh, we even do this kind of thing today. I mean, sometimes, I and mean, let's say if, if Marie had something, a major event happened in her life, and, and I came home, and she spends five minutes telling me the story. I talk about this one person in this event, in the story, and then, and then later she gets together with her friends because women like to talk a lot more. She spends half an hour telling the same story, and, and, and then she's talking about other people who are involved in the situation, and, and you wouldn't say, well, that's a contradiction, it's like, no, one just has more details, one has less, I mean, you got to realize that some of the stuff in here is, is the disciples summarizing some of the teachings of Jesus, because y- you hear, uh, Jesus goes and teaches the crowd, and then it takes 10 seconds to read, it's like, is that really all Jesus said? No, he would have taught a lot, but they either summarized what he was saying or maybe took a portion. You read in in the book of Acts, Peter preaches a sermon to everybody and it takes a minute to read. Was that the extent of his sermon? Really? Uh, No, it's probably maybe a summarized version or maybe a chunk of his sermon, but there's more or less details throughout the Bible and there's nothing to be afraid of. We do that all the time. And we don't even say, well, that's one's wrong and one's right. It can even happen. Let's say after the sermon. Someone comes up to me and says, well, let me get this straight. So what you were saying is, and in 30 seconds, they kind of summarize my sermon, it was in, and they say, is that right? I say, yeah, you're bang on. They just took a half an hour sermon, put it down to 10 seconds, and I say, hey, you were bang on. Th- they're both true, and sometimes we see that in the Bible. There's different chronology. Uh, we see this a lot, but here's one example, Matthew 4. This is the temptation. There are different orders. Matthew says that Jesus was tempted with turning stones into bread and then throw yourself down from the temple, then worship me. Luke says it went this way. Stones into bread, worship me, throw yourself down from the temple. And again, those who challenge the Bible say, this is a real issue. This is supposed to be God's word and, it, and it's out of order. I thought God was perfect. If he was perfect, then the timing would be right. Not all. This was not written in today's culture where, again, it's a videotape world. Back then, they were taught and trained to put things often more thematically. And we see a lot of times things are placed thematically in the Bible rather than chronologically in the Bible and then again as we talked about before sometimes we see uh, different wording again so we see in Matthew 9 it says Jesus knew what they were thinking so we asked them why do you have such evil thoughts in your heart is it uh, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk so here we have the same story this only happened once And yet Jesus says something a little bit different. Uh, Mark chapter 2, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? And so people challenge you, well, it can't, it can't be, both can't be right, because it's supposed to be God's word, it's supposed to be perfect, and this is the same story, yet Jesus is saying something different. And if you have some sort of simple, fundamentalistic understanding of the Bible, this will kill you, And a lot of these atheists out there, they they get their power because they get their power over people who have a kind of the simple understanding of the scripture and and that's where they get their their energy from in this world. But we don't need to be afraid of this. You don't need to be afraid of science. This, again, was the way they were taught. And uh, one more here. Again, different wordy. Matthew 12. This event only happened once. Jesus only said this once, but it says he said it in two different ways. Uh, Matthew 12. If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Uh, Luke 11 says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, that's different, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what in the world do we do with this? Well, here's the deal. Rabbis in Jesus' day and typical education taught people to not repeat things word by word. Now, we're often taught that today, that if you quote someone, you've got to make sure you have the quote and the footnote, and it all has to be perfect. Back then, that was like, ah oh, that's elementary. They were taught to learn to paraphrase, expand, or contract teaching. Uh, Dr. Cra- Craig Evans, who is an amazing New Se- Testament scholar, says this. Expanding, contracting, and paraphrasing the master's teaching was standard practice in late antiquity and expressly taught in schools. In in fact, if you wanted to get into university, you had to be able to do this. That if you took somebody's teaching and you came to apply for university and you just quoted it exactly, they would say, that's that's elementary. What you needed to do is take someone's teaching and be able to adapt it in the best way so that those who were hearing it could understand. In fact, here is a quote from a textbook uh, from around Jesus' time. It says, Practice by restatement is self-evident, for we try to express the assigned kriyas, the teaching or saying, as best we can with the same words as in the version given to us or with others in the clearest way. When God inspired these disciples to write the Gospels, it wasn't, you have to have this word-by-word accurate. It was inspired them to present it in the clearest way for their audience. Now, it's not a word-for-word culture, but more of a thought-by-thought culture. The thoughts are exactly what Jesus said, even though they might be expressed a little bit differently. Again, this is not this, and Jesus would have taught his disciples to do that. Like, that's just what they taught in those days. Again, he, this is nothing to be afraid of. This is God working through the culture of that day, and we can totally read the teachings of Jesus and say, that's exactly what Jesus said. And so this is how it was practiced in those days. Now, we need to be careful, as I close here, that we do not worship this book. We worship Jesus. And this may be why, you know, when we talk about manuscripts that we can compile 99, about .5, 99.5% perfectly, you know, what the original said, but we're still a little bit confused about .5 of it, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago. We don't know 100% this is exact. We know 99.5% is exact, but there's a little bit of error in there, and maybe, God allowed that so we don't worship this book, that we worship him, okay? This was the mistake of the Pharisees. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. This book is not an end in itself. It points us to truth embodied, which is Jesus. And man, you can have perfect theology. You could have this Bible memorized upside down and right and still completely miss it. I mean, I guarantee you that Satan has better theology than all of us. And he's not saved. I mean, the question is not, do you have every piece of theology memorized? Well, theology is very important, and doctrine is super important, and we must focus on those things. But, I mean, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you have a relationship with the truth, Jesus Christ? In his teachings are freedom. Last verse. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you really... Uh, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I mean, do you feel free today? I mean, I, mean, I, I feel free for the most part, and you probably feel free in, some, in the most part, but but I have areas in my life where I don't quite feel free. I mean, This week, I was really struggling with, with anxiety, and just, you know, it was kind of overwhelming, and I kept trying to say, you know, don't be anxious, and, and trying to go back to the truth, but there's all areas where, where we're not fully free, and this is, or we go to Jesus. This is why you need to be in this book. Because in this book, we find the teachings of Jesus with our, which are true and set us free. I mean, we don't look to the world, we look to this word when we're uh, struggling with things and we need freedom. If you need freedom, uh, spend some time in this book. I mean, all of us should be reading this book during the week. I mean, stick it on your, your toilet and just pick it up and read. Stick it in your bed or, you know, listen to it when you're driving. You get as much word in because the more you get this word in and apply it, and the more you're going to be walking in freedom. And so we do not need to be afraid of science. You don't need to be afraid of any kind of criticism coming to uh, our way because of this Bible. Because, man, this thing is rock solid and we can trust it. All yeah. right, I'm going to invite the worship team up. And uh, let's pray together. Let's stand as we pray. God, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we thank you that you have not left us to just try to trust in you only on faith, that you have given us facts to rest on. Uh, God, that you uh, have revealed yourself in such a way that we can trust you. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the life that it gives us. I thank you that it points to you. God, I thank you that every time I read it, and many of you read it here, God, that we are energized and engaged and we we feel that we're being drawn close to you. So God, would you help us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word.
1: God, would you not just
0: help us to be about theology, but living that theology as we love you and we love people. God help us not to be people who just get life from religion, but get life through Your Word, directed at you, God, that we might walk in freedom. I gotta Thank you for Your work. You are so incredibly good to us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's sing.